Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to gather this morning and to look upon these words and to give our heart and our thoughts entirely to them. Lord, we thank you so much for the cross of Christ, which has made us right. It has fixed our position in, in righteousness before you by your, justified, your justification, your act of justification. You declared us to be righteous by the merits of your Son. We don't, get, we don't become righteous by any deeds of our own or any good works or any law-keeping, but we stand fixed and firmly, um, solidly upon the finished work of Jesus Christ this morning, and we're so grateful for him. And it's in the aftermath of his finished work that we consider give this consideration to our, our walk of Christ, walk in Christ, walk in obedience, the walk of sanctification. What does it mean to be holy? Lord, uh, we, we, entire, we do desire to be made like you in that you are holy, so also we should be holy. And Lord, we are oftentimes uh, just sort of confused and discouraged by the progress we make. So Lord, we're going to ask for your help this week and, and, and the weeks ahead, out ahead of us to help us and lead us and guide us as we try to make progress here, not just in our own understanding of the scriptures, but actually in uh, battling our own sin identifying it and uh, uh, repenting and turning to Christ and finding strength and help. Lord, fill us with the grace that we need to do that and the Holy Spirit of, uh, who is going to accomplish that work in us by your, by your promise in the word. And Lord, we'll ask for all this in the precious name of our Savior. Amen. So in our, next, in our few weeks that we have together, I want to invite you to take a journey. It's really a, a journey that is literally a spiritual trip of a lifetime because it takes a lifetime to complete. It's one that is designed to fundamentally transform you into the likeness of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, salvation is not, we often think of salvation as just a single point event, and it is in that we trust Christ by turning from our sin, repenting and believing upon him. We are instantaneously and uh, changed and transformed from darkness into light, and that is an absolute fixed theological truth. And yet there is still an ongoing cleansing and sanctifying work that God intends to complete over the lifetime of every believer. So when I talk about a journey of sanctification, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that it's some kind of journey to personal discovery or that you're, you're going on some kind of journey for uh, personal enlightenment or self-actualization. This is not becoming a better you. That's not what I'm trying to teach here. Uh, sometimes a lot of sanctification teaching sounds like that. It sounds like um, just um, journeying to become a better you. And while this journey does involve you, it's not about you. Um, it isn't ultimately at least about you. It's really about Christ gaining for, his, for himself a people that he has made holy, and it will bring him maximum glory. So there are three basic, quick, three basic reasons I want to give you that I think are pastoral reasons why I want to go ahead and cover this. I sort of mentioned this already. We alluded earlier that we focused more on what to separate from than, rather than focus on what to separate ourselves unto. So there's a positive side of this. We can avoid worldliness, and we can, we can identify that and have a strategic sort of approach to that, but the, the con that conversation and that understanding has to be embedded deeply within an understanding of what is sanctification's purpose and how is it accomplished. Otherwise, it's very easy to become ascetic or uh, someone who just withdraws from the world and just sees all, anything that they deem to be unclean. If they can just avoid that from participating in that, then, then they become convinced that they are 
sanctified, and that's that's not the idea I want us to accomplish. So, um, so there is um, secondly here another warning. A warning about worldliness is part of the danger, or sorry, are part of the larger matter of Christians' holiness and growing in sanctification. And then biblical sanctification is not merely becoming an ascetic, that is, someone who just practices self-denial, abstinence, and austere practices in order to attain a spiritual, high spiritual state or considers themselves to be um, sanctified there. So we're trying to avoid that extreme by embedding this in a better, in a, in a more fuller discussion of sanctification. Then there are some practical reasons, and I think that this study will help because at least from my experience and perhaps from yours as well, uh, many Christians don't see the importance of understanding sanctification or how it works. From the moment we come to Christ and we rejoice in the hope of our salvation and the fact that our sins are forgiven, it seems like the, the challenge of living that life in keeping with our new standing in Christ is, is, is just going to be ever-present upon us as Christians. So, And a lot of us struggle with basic things, like what do we do with sin that continues to uh, become present in our life? How do we handle that? How do we um, uh, continually stay at the fight to try to um, continue to, to make progress in our Christian walk? So there's that practical reason. I think Christians need to be helped in understanding sanctification and how it works. Also, Christians often can't detect defective teaching about sanctification, and there is a lot of it. Um, in fact, uh, at some point, one of the lessons we're going to talk about is how does sanctification taught across the broad spectrum of Christianity. There are at least six views that I could identify um, with the help of this book that I've got here that um, talks about these different views of sanctification. How do you, does a Christian live with sin? How can he expect to gain victory over sin? Um, how is he, what is the process that God goes through to make us holy over time? There are very distinct differences across Christianity, and these differences are extremely important and can be spiritually, um, they can spiritually cripple you if you have a wrong one. And so it's important to have that uh, clarified. So one of the things we want to do is get some uh, clarity on how to discern the dangers of a defective sanctification or a pseudo-sanctification for that, for that matter. Um, thirdly, many Christians battle sin using ineffective weaponry. I mentioned this earlier already. Uh, therefore, many Christians lead discouraged and defeated lives. Rather than fighting sin with the biblical tools, we're throwing sticks into the darkness and we're playing patty cake with the sin. And rather, we rather should have shoulder-mounted javelin missiles and you know, and something more effective, flamethrowers, to try to kill our sin. And we're we're not using the biblical avail- biblically available tools to fight sin. So, one of the lessons we want to talk about is the Christian's work of mortifying sin. And what does the scripture tell us about how to do that? When it comes to the place of good works in the Christian life, sometimes we can get, con- we can get confused about the role of works and the role of the law for a Christian. And uh, some see it as a means by which they use it to purify and sanctify their lives in order to become more holy. So we observe in um, Christianity today, I think, two basic categories of professing believers. Those who feel that they're self-justified by their own good works and they overestimate themselves to be pretty good persons. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people who claim to know Christ and you ask them if, they're, if they think they're a good person, they'll emphatically nod, yes, I'm, I'm a good person. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm, you know I'm, I'm better than so-and-so or I, I try to do the good best I can, but I, I consider myself to be a generally decent person. 
And the, the way in which they double down on the, the emphasis upon self and their, and their righteousness within themselves can be quite overwhelming at times. So there's that kind of category of person. There's also those who express a self-satisfaction and show no works of obedience. They're like, well, you know, I'm, I'm justified by faith, and that's good enough for me, but I'm going to go on living my life unchanged, not moved by the fact that I've been justified by Christ, and I produce nothing, no fruit bearing in keeping with that. So there's that category of Christian as well. So these are showing me a lot of problems with a defective kind of sanctification. They, that's not the intention of God for your, for your life. Uh, fifthly here, quickly, uh, many genuine Christians begin to adopt attitudes toward other people's sanctification, confessing other people's sins rather than their own. Have you ever met anyone like this? Yeah, I can tell you who. No, that, no that's you now. Okay, so, <laughs> yeah, so we confess other people's sin. That's, a, that's the definition of a hypocrite, right? Um, confessing other people's sins, having attitudes where you're impatient, you're, you're, you have an unchristlike attitude towards your brother about his unchristlikeness. Um, these sorts of attitudes are very common in the church, and we end up being less than gracious and less than charitable. So this is why we need this kind of teaching. Another reason is most Christians are part of an entire denomination which distinguish themselves from each other from an un- by an unbiblical understanding of sanctification. At one point, we're going to map why are there so many denominations in in the broad spectrum of Christianity today. Why are there so, are they all, aren't they all basically the same? No, they're not basically the same. I mean, yeah, we have some commonalities. We cover some common ground. We stand on some basic truths, like maybe perhaps the Trinity or uh, Christ's work on the cross, perhaps, in some state sins. But when it gets to the doctrine of sanctification, which I would argue is a central piece of the Christian faith, there are widely varied diff, uh, interpretations of this and uh, it's very easy to deviate off course from what the Bible is actually saying. So sanctification is, I think, an important thing to understand. In order, order for you to do that, and I don't think these are just scholars to, uh, quibbling over a shibboleth. I think this is actually something that we, every Christian, needs to have an understanding of. It's not a matter of semantics. The differences in sanctification teaching um, represent either a different gospel or can at least be a severe crippling of the flock there. So we want to make sure that your heads up is, is, is appropriate there. Every Christian needs to understand the different ways in which sanctification is conceived and most often misconstructed so we can biblically shepherd others in truth about their sin, growth, and holiness. Every one of us is going to have an opportunity to have a conversation with someone about how to overcome a, 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 a besetting sin or a debilitating Sin, a habitual sin. We'll put it that way. How do you how do you how do you navigate that? How do you discern the issues involved, and how are you able to offer them biblical counsel? So, one of the things that this study is hoped to do is going to pro- move you from a defensive position of your faith, where you whereby you are by grace sanctifying Christ in your heart, and then giving out a defense for the faith, in sort of a way in which you just sit back and you wait to be approached. And then you, then you offer a, a response. Um, scriptures do, do give place for that, though, don't they? In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, it tells us that we should sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts and always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with gentleness and, re- and reverence. So we do have an obligation to be defensive, 
But that's not the only position that we as Christians should adopt. We should have a posture of offensiveness, not, not to be offensive, but to have a, an approach where we are in actively engaging, taking initiative action here. Jude 3 says that while I was making every effort to write to you about, about our common, converse, common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. Um, we need Christians who can contend, who can, who can stand with others, other Christians, other believers, and um, unbelievers as well, but with, among the church and be able to engage each other, when, confront each other in, in biblical ways, in Christ-like ways, contend for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. So every Christian needs to understand these truths. It's not just a pastor's prerogative to know these things. It's something you desperately need to know, whether you think you do or not. hope these are compelling enough reasons. If they're not, I've got some biblical ones, okay? <laughs> biblical reasons, which should be ultimately just, these are slam dunk. You've got to know this because I'll tell you why. Number one, the most powerful, one, some of the, I, have, I have five reasons. Number one, we prize all of God's revelation, don't we? If you're a Christian this morning, there's nobody in this room who's going to advocate for taking parts of the scriptures and just passing over them, ignoring them, removing them, passing them off as being something I don't need to have an understanding of or have an interaction with. Um, We prize all of God's revelation. God has revealed to us his one great goal and purpose for your life. Did you see that in Romans chapter 8, verse 29? We read through it quickly. Look at it one more time with me. Yeah, they're open before you. God revealing to you what it is that he set, why, why you exist, why it is that you have been placed on this earth, your purpose. Um, Romans chapter 8, verse 29 tells us that for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these also he called, and whom he called, these also he justified. And whom he justified, these also, these he also glorified. So there in the beginning of verse 29, what is it? What is the purpose for which God in eternity past predestined those who would be believe, believe upon him? What is the ultimate goal in that? To be like his son. Is that what you're going to say? Absolutely. So from before you even named the name of Christ, before you came to the conviction of your sin and confessed upon Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it was in the heart of God already to make you into the image of Christ. Your purpose is not a mystery. It's something you don't have to go on a journey of personal discovery, try to find yourself in this world. As a Christian, here it is revealed to us, your purpose is to image Christ in the world around you. That's the one soul existence while you breathe air today, to make Christ known, to make him uh, seen and understood and, and, and through your life. You are predestined for this. Ephesians 1.4 tells us here that just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. There it is again stated in a very succinct way. Why were you elected? Why did God choose you from before the foundations of the earth? What was the purpose of that? Well, it was because he had made a specific intentional purpose in that, that you were to be holy and to be blameless. He is looking for a holy people. And he's not saying here that he's looking out amongst the vast masses of history, looking for those who were already holy or blameless. 
But the idea here is that he's looking for people. He chose people that he is going to work in his works through his Holy Spirit and by his grace. He's going to produce holy and blameless people. God is at, work, God is at action in action in this verse, bringing about the holy and holiness and blamelessness of his people. So, a lot of perplexing philosophical wrangling and. All of your existential angst can all be avoided when this truth finally dawns upon you. You, cheat, exist, you exist chiefly to, to image forth Christ in this world. Election and predestination and all of the hang-ups that people have around that, all of that has got to be set aside for this idea. You are, these are cardinal truths that have direct and inextricable ramifications upon your life, goal, and purpose. You have a destiny. You have a destiny that has been marked out beforehand by the decree of God. It's a foregone conclusion that those whom God has chosen and predestined are bound to image forth his son and to lead holy and blameless lives. That's your manifest destiny. You ever wonder about what, why, why God has left you on this earth to breathe air and to live life? It's not entirely, it's not a self-focused pursuit. It's so that you can bring ultimate maximum glory to Christ by sanctification. And it's the guarantee of God. I love this verse. I love the sound of hope that rings forth from it. Paul says, I am confident. I am confident about this very thing. I don't know what you think you could stand and say you're confident about this morning, but there's a lot of things in the world I'm not too confident about, but there's no question here. I'm confident as well that he who began the work in me will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's a guarantee of God. That anyone who is begun, anyone whom he justifies, he will sanctify. That God doesn't abandon the work in progress, right? God's no quitter. What he began and started in you, he will see it through to the day of Jesus Christ. So if you're losing hope, if you're becoming defeated and discouraged about sin, sin that's continuing, continually to continue to afflict you, sins that you continually willfully participate in. I don't want you to grow discouraged because God's no quitter. He's not going to abandon a, a work in progress. He will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, that should be a compelling enough reason. We all we prize all of God's revelation. We understand all these truths to be um, evident to us. But secondly, we need to also recognize that sanctification, in sanctification, we are pursuing the joy of holiness. Now, how many of you, when you think of holiness, the, probably the, the response of emotion that you think of associated with holiness is not one of joy, is it? We, think of, we all think of people who are consider themselves to be pretty holy people, and we usually don't associate them as being very joyous people. But um, that's just the opposite in scriptures. Let's turn to John chapter 17. I think this is fascinating. In John chapter 17, we are getting a a peek into the communication that occurs between members of the Godhead. Jesus, the Son of God, communing with his Father in an intense prayer that we are kind of over, overhearing in this chapter, whereby Jesus himself is praying for your sanctification. Now, if that isn't reason enough alone for you to be interested in sanctification, I don't know what is. Jesus is interested in your sanctification, and in the dying... In the moments just before his betrayal and his crucifixion, foremost on his mind is the thought of your holiness, your sanctification. 
John chapter 17 says um, this in verse 13. We'll begin. I think I have the verse up here if you haven't found it yet. Jesus says, but now I, Jesus, come to you, Father, and these things I speak, these things I speak in the world. Why? Why am I speaking these things? Why am I disclosing these truths of heaven, these truths that are of God? Why am I saying these things? Well, I'm saying it so that they may have joy made full in themselves. Joy comes as a result from the words of God. Okay? Okay. So the purpose which he's giving this is that our joy may be made full in ourselves. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but, but to keep them from the evil one. They're not of this world, even, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So as you can see here, in the, in the same paragraph of thought jesus is both praying for your joy to be made complete to be made to the fullest through the process through through the work that god does in his words his disclosure of his will and of his mind and of his truth to you that you are undergoing you're undergoing a process called sanctification sanctify through the truth through thy truth thy word is truth thereby the result your joy will be made full what makes you intrinsically happy? You ever thought about that? Why is everybody in the world chasing happiness? They can't find it anywhere. You catch little tastes of it, little foretastes of it perhaps, but what, what, what actually brings you a sense of fulfillment? What, what is your highest aspiration and your grandest ambition? What would, you, what would fill you to overflowing with a permanent and unceasing contentment of joy to the fullest measure possible? What in your life can you think of brings you that kind of joy? Anything? Being with Christ. Being with Christ. Absolutely. Yeah. Is there anything rival to that? I mean, I can't. This passage, what, what Christ is saying is that the words which I'm giving you is what's going to produce this joy made full. Jesus is praying for you to have his joy made full in you. How? Through the sanctifying power and effect of his own words, perfecting you in the truth. Jesus is praying for your growth and holiness, and thereby you reap this intense blessing of his fullest joy made full. So do you want to be a joyful Christian? Then you're interested in sanctification. You want to be a word-saturated, sanctified Christian. Christians who do not progress in sanctification are miserable. Are they not? You know this, don't you? Perhaps some of the most miserable people you've ever met are Christians, people who profess to be Christians and are living in, in, practical, in, in habitual sin. The holy, a holy Bible is meant to produce a holy person, a holy man and a holy woman, and thereby joy results. So if it's joy you're seeking and you're looking for it in the pleasures of the world and the desires of your flesh, you'll never find it. It's only promised here in the words of Christ. Thirdly, and I might run out of time. I don't even know what time it is right now. Okay, I got a few minutes here. We're getting close. We pursue God's righteousness for God's sake. Psalm 23, verse 3. Now, I know I'm skipping around, and this might be driving you guys crazy. Quite honestly, it drives me crazy to be skipping around like this. But there are some truths here that I'm just trying to tease out for you, because I'm hoping that, like sanctification, 
this series we're going to do in Sunday school is progressive. It builds upon the next step after the next step after the next step. So I want you to come back week after week because we're going to be layering upon layer a theology of sanctification. So, but in this first one, I want to tease out for you what's here. Some of the hold out some of these nuggets that I think that are going to be beneficial for you. Psalm chapter twenty-three is a shepherd psalm, right? Uh, precious, beautiful psalm brings comfort to us every time we are um, fearful, anxious, grieving, um, in need of guidance. We remember the shepherd psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters and he restores my soul. Then listen to this. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Like sheep are fed and led by the shepherd, the psalmist is drawing a pastoral metaphor here with our sanctification. He guides us. He guides us into the path of righteousness. Sheep don't lead themselves anywhere but into trouble, do we? The psalmist is reminding us that it's God who is in control of the direction, the timing, the place, and all of the details surrounding your sanctification. He sovereignly guides the process along. That is to say, he's intimately involved in your sanctification. See, he's not simply levying mandates upon you as he stands to the side and mandates you to be holy and does not intend to guide you in that. How involved is he in our sanctification? Well, Paul says that it is God who is at work in us, both to will and to work in his good ple- for his good pleasure. God's involvement in your sanctification is not an external one. Like he sets up some standards and some to-do list that you now comply with. No, he's actually operative in the inner part of your being, creating new will, creating new desires, and causing the works to take place. Isn't that amazing? So when good works are being done in your life, who's responsible for those? You? No. God. God is working in you to work his good pleasure. And he's working. What, what causes you to want to, be th- to do things for Christ? What, what, is it, what causes you to want to be in his word? Well, that desire, that will is coming from God himself. God is doing a sanctifying work in you. So take heart by this that your sanctification does not rest entirely in your own doing, in your own responsibility. Now, you have a part to play, and you're to be responsible. I'm not talking about checking out and passively letting this process take place. You are called upon constantly in the scriptures to have a responsible um, action involved in this. But you are not helping God. You're not doing things to bring pleasure to God by your own self-effort. Don't ever forget that. Just We cannot forget that just as our own works could not produce, could not save us from our great debt before God, even so in sanctification our works cannot please God by ourselves. We continue to walk in faith and that God will graciously work his works in and through us so that we may be pleasing to him. The only works that please God are his works. His works done in us and through us. Those are what works please him. And that keeps us humble keeps us from building ourselves up like we are holier than thou Christians, like somehow by our own self-effort, we have made we've brought pleasure to our God. No. God has to work the works in us and through us. Colossians 2, 6 reminds us of this. It says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, remember how you received him? 
Did you receive him by faith, simply, humbly, having nothing to offer, nothing to give, nothing to contribute to your salvation? You came to him completely and standing in need of grace. Just as you received him, so walk. So walk in him. Now, he's talking about here, having been firmly rooted, now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. We walk by faith. It's not a different kind of faith. It's not a faith of a different quality or a different character. It's the same kind of faith that you receive Christ humbly, that you are to walk in him. Nothing you do brings pleasure to God. Only his works done in you will bring him great pleasure. Um, so you'll learn, you'll, back to Psalm chapter 23, verse 3, you'll learn sooner or later this, and maybe you already have, I'm sure you have, as we all inevitably will learn this, that you do not get to choose the path the Lord leads you in your sanctification. The path is one of his choice, and it's called the path of righteousness for a reason, because it produces righteousness. The path which produces righteousness is not one of your own righteousness. It's God's righteousness being made worked into your life through passing through narrow, straight paths through the wilderness. As Middle Eastern shepherds would lead their flocks out across the wilderness, they would often have to pass through mountain passes that were very narrow, and the large flock would have to file down into a single line, and they'd pass through these passes, and there were times when the sheep couldn't see anything more than the sheep in front of them, maybe this, maybe a couple sheep around them, there was no sight of the shepherd. And yet, they're passing through this very narrow and treacherous place, being guided there for the purpose of keeping them hemmed in, keeping them uh, conformed to a standard, conformed to a, conformed to a path that, uh, that the shepherd is trying to lead them through. And so when you think about this, David considers that and says, Lord, you're guiding me through, through straight paths, through paths of righteousness. And the purpose you're doing this is for your sake, for your namesake. God has a stake in your sanctification. If you're not holy by the end of your sanctification, God takes that upon himself, responsibility. Okay? His interest in your sanctification is so that he will receive the honor due his great name. He's guiding you into holiness because it reflects glory upon himself. And as you know, God is very much about his own glory. And he should be. So lastly here, and our time's nearly gone. <coughs> Pardon me. What time we got? Yeah, we're out of time. I'm not going to get to the fifth reason. Okay. Uh, number four, we perceive our own need of change. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 tells us the process of sanctification necessarily requires change. You cannot be a Christian and stay the same for 30, 40, 50 years unchanged. It might be news to you, but you're probably not a Christian. Okay. Christians change by definition. Sanctification works itself out. The process of sanctification, the kind of change you need to undergo is otherwise impossible apart from God's grace that he imparts through his Holy Spirit. If there's no change, you have no Holy Spirit. If there's no change, you have no uh, grace to change. So we are new creatures who are undergoing transition and transformation. We are putting off the old man and replacing the old manner of life by putting on the new man. We're going to talk about this putting off and putting on evolves, what it looks like. It's very beautiful imagery and helpful when you're thinking about how do I replace sinful patterns of behavior with godly ones and what context is that taking place and how do I do this faithfully. But I hope at least you want to change. Don't you? You should. 
the thing that concerns me most about my sin is that my, it doesn't concern me enough. My sin doesn't concern me enough. It doesn't sicken me. It doesn't detest, I don't detest it. I more or less come to terms with it. And that's a major issue. You will never change as long as you're like that. If your conscience is not stirred by the word of God and the Holy Spirit and you don't get a chance to stand downwind of yourself once in a while and suddenly realize how badly you're in need of change, you'll never cry out to God to change you unless you ransack the scriptures and look for ways to kill these sins that are killing you. You'll never know what it's like to change. A Christian who's earnest about sanctification is not someone who's just passive, indifferent, laissez-faire, unmoved by the indwelling sin of his life. You've read Romans 7, haven't you? Romans 7 is, a, is you cannot read that without being moved to great struggle. I mean, you hear Paul saying, the man that I want to be, I can't be, and the man I, I, I desire to have, that I desire to be is not the one I am. And, and he's cast into a great struggle against the reigning power of sin and the kind of desperation that a man will have if he's in a fight for his very life. Now, you're not fighting to keep your eternal security in that state. You're not, you're not set, eternal security is firmly fixed. When God, like I said, it's a chain, right? God started the work. He's going to see it through. There's no chance of him abandoning a work in progress. But there are times in your Christian life where you will struggle against sin and you will wonder if you're going to make it out alive. Okay? And you're going to struggle with that. But a Christian is a man who takes no prisoners when it comes to mortifying sin. And the word mortifying is important. We're going to talk about mortification of sin in a few weeks. And we provoke our pastor's labors. I love this verse. I'm just going to share it with you. Listen to the pastor's heart here. My children, with whom I am again in labor... Unto Christ is formed in you, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. I can't tell you, I've, I've seen pastors, I've seen our pastors, uh, weep and cry and yearn and long and pace floors and be upset and bend knees in prayer, begging God to work the work of sanctification in the hearts of the people at Timberlake Baptist Church. There is serious heart-rending, intense passion happening here. Can you imagine your pastors awake at mid- in the middle of the night, sleepless in the twilight hours? Their minds are restless. Their thought of where you stand with the Lord is on them, on them, preventing them from sleep. They wonder how long you're going to keep your self-centered living patterns, your self-centered patterns of living and unloving treatment of others, and they desire greatly for you to be formed after Christ. Oh, they would be, uh, that they'd be sanctified. Can, man, can you imagine them similar to a woman in long and strenuous labor? How many, of you had, how many of you ladies had long labor? You get to the end of 30 hours of labor, and you think, I don't have strength to bring forth. I can't even bring this child into the world. You're, you're the, the moment of uh, just you're tired, you're pained, you're miserable, and yet you're unwilling to stop. You can't stop. These pastors can't stop praying for your sanctification, and they won't. And other concerned Christians around you in your life are not stopping praying for you. Okay? So let that be on your mind. When they're praying harder for your sin than you are, and they're praying for deliverance, and you're, and you're, not, and you're not changing, I want you to know, I think it's important that you study the doctrine of sanctification so that you will understand the extent to which other people are gripped by the grief, the pain, and the misery that's being caused by your decision to deny Christ and embrace the world. We all have loved ones who are walking away from Christ and the pain in our hearts is un, it's unexpressible what it's like to go through that. So 
you need to understand sanctification. That's the fifth reason. Lastly here, I'm just going to show you in the next couple of weeks. I want to get into next week discussing what is, how does sanctification actually work? Hopefully I've got you bought into the idea that you need to know this. Okay? Secondly, you need to know how it actually works so that you can use the scriptural pattern. You're not going to be dabbling in personal development and, and trying to look at other means to remedy your sin. You're going to look at biblical remedies for your sin. How do I actually change? So you're going to look at six views on sanctification in a couple of weeks. Defective sanctification, what is the danger here? We see, we see counterfeit sanctification all over the place. You don't want the counterfeit. You want the genuine and the real, right? Well, how do I mortify my sin? How do I actually take effective measures against sin that's in my life and stop throwing sticks at the darkness and stop playing patty cake with my sin and actually pull out the flamethrowers and start actually putting this thing to death? Okay? Works, law, and obedience. Okay? What role does that have? And are there any shortcuts? There's a lot of denominations who teach you that sanctification is a second experience that's going to just catapult you into another level of spiritual experience. You can bypass all the hardship of holy striving and all the dependence on Christ and need for his grace, and then you can just kind of, boom, you're in a second state of sanctification, a second blessing. And there's a lot of ideas about that. So are there any shortcuts? And then we'll talk by proper motivations for sanctification in the end, and I think that'll be helpful to us. Lord, I thank you for the time we've been together. Thanks for the extra time, Lord, for giving us this, uh, this word that has taught us, that's teaching us the central place that this plays in our Christian life. Help us, Lord, as we endeavor to do these things, not in our strength of our own uh, power, but in the power that has been given to us by this grace that is now given to us in Christ, that we have now had the power of sin shattered and broken over our lives, and we can resist sin. We can fight it effectively. But, Lord, help us to do so fully aware of the biblical truth on sanctification. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.